in the old model of things, it was just prohibitively expensive to deal with the exceptions. And so you kind of had to say, I have X amount of dollars, technology is very expensive, building programs is complicated, so I need to focus on the hips and knees and, you know, forget the shoulders or ankles. And, you know, um, I can only do these six cancers that are affecting everybody. Um, And so... Um, there were winner diseases and loser diseases. And so complex care fees would only cover certain conditions like diabetes and heart disease. But what about my patients with HIV or autoimmune disease? And and like, why are they not served? And so part of the beauty of technology is that um, the cost of launching a program has come down and you can create a service that is almost like a dedicated to a subgroup of people who are until now underserviced. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Dr. Alexandra Greenhill is one of Canada's leading physicians in digital health innovation and the co-founder, CEO, and chief medical officer of Care Team Technologies, the digital health platform solving the fragmentation of healthcare. Care Team was the recipient of the Canadian Medical Association's Jewel Innovation Award. After having implemented health innovation at scale and practiced medicine in Quebec, Ontario, and BC, she now leads and advises Canada's most promising technology companies. Dr. Greenhill's recognitions include Startup Canada's Woman Entrepreneur of the Year Award, YWCA Woman of Distinction Entrepreneurship, WXN's Top 100 Most Powerful Women in Canada, BIV Top 40 Under 40, and the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal of Service. Alexandra, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you, Amal. Very excited to be here. Lovely to have you. So we're going to dig into a number of topics that I think are dear to you and were fascinating to me. But before we do, you have a wide breadth of experience, previously as a clinician, what I'm going to affectionately call as administrator within the healthcare ecosystem, trying to collaborate and herd people together, and now as a founder. So before we kind of dive into the specific topics, maybe just give our guests sort of a high-level arc of your career and more specifically, how you ended up at the intersection of health and technology? That's a great question. My career makes no sense unless you have the secret key behind the scenes. And the secret key is the following. How can I have the biggest impact on as many people as possible? And it tends to be something that led me to projects that other people said it would be impossible but, and I was like, well, what's the but? And they said, well, if you actually accomplish this, it will be a big breakthrough. It will be a game changer. And I was like, well, maybe it's not that impossible. Maybe we can sit down and figure it out. And so a trajectory of accolade is oftentimes because you've tackled things that other people thought was foolhardy or challenging or sometimes even stupid. But um, with dedication and persistence and collaboration with others, um, we have been able to achieve breakthroughs. So, so how? So, when did you get the? You know, you did all that great stuff. When did you, I guess, get the internal attraction to technology? Because, I guess, or were you always in technology? Or um, I think I've heard you say sort of your. I think your parents were sort of embedded into technology a little bit. Where did that sort of you decide to sort of cross these two? I'm going to call them largely domains, like as opposed to just picking one and sticking with it. Um, my parents were academics and uh, I'm just the MD of the family because I didn't follow the PhD path, but they did buy me a Commodore 64. Oh, I remember um, it well. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the day when my games would crash, I would have to figure out how to repair them. And so I I effectively self-taught uh, enough of basic to get by. And it turns out that a lot of their friends who were academics needed help crunching large data sets. And to anyone who understood basic, and then I self-taught Pascal was welcome to help. 
And so I fell into the technology piece before medical school, used that to pay for my undergrad, but didn't think of that as a career choice because I didn't know anybody else for whom this was a career choice. And um, now I can connect the dots, but I started a computer club in medical school called Cybermedic, not Cybernetic. And uh, that was one of days where the internet was nascent and we used to teach my uh, classmates and professors how to use the internet because that was the first few years where you had the World Wide Web replace Archie and Gopher. And so um, I've always had a love for technology, but I've always seen it as a tool to something else, not uh, the geeky sort of look at a shiny object, but more around look at what it can accomplish that you couldn't do before. Got it. Well, that's fascinating. So you're probably one of the few guests who started out with technology, went to healthcare, and then sort of merged the two. That, that's that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, I ended up practicing as an emergency room doctor, and I have this sort of an inherent bias to always ask myself, hey, this this didn't feel right. This was not a great experience. How can we make it better? And just sort of play around with the concept and come up with ideas and then voice them out. And then you discover that, hey, I was not the only one who thought about this being a problem. And people seem to like the solution and they've added these components to the idea. And suddenly we have the beginning of a project. And so uh, I've started a lot of these type of initiatives accidentally by asking questions and following a thread. Um, that connected me to others who were also interested in the same problem. Right. Which is perfectly the ethos of a founder, right? I mean, it's curiosity, it's exploration, it's sort of tinkering on the edge and seeing what works and then letting other people run with it and then improving on it. So so that actually leads me to to the, to the first question, which which I've heard you speak about in the past. There's no shortage of problems in the healthcare system. I think that's probably what attracts a lot of founders into the system, particularly engineers trying to just sort of fix things um, because they're busted. Uh, talk to us a little bit about sort of your interactions with founders, you know, as an advisor or as a mentor to them. In particular, what's your perspective of, have you noticed a difference with founders who come in wanting to fix a problem versus those who want to fix what I'm going to call an injustice in the healthcare system? Do they, have you noticed that they attack the problem differently? And, and what I'm really trying to understand is, in particularly in healthcare domain, how important is it that there has to be a meaning or an attachment to the problem they're going to solve versus just a fix? I mean, it's a fascinating question. And so in any domain, investors will tell you that the teams that they see succeed, that the ones who are really passionate about solving a problem. So a firsthand experience where the person will not give up, but will figure it out because for whatever reason they were triggered, they were personally invested in seeing this succeed is uh, probably the most consistent parameter that defines a successful team. Uh, It's not the most educated, the most funded, or uh, the most capable. It's just the most uh, bloody minded (laughs) to make it uh, and and, uh, discover the solution. Teams that succeed are also focused on a problem, not on a solution. So people who come in and say, look, I have a shiny hammer. You should use it for Mm -hmm. everything you do. Tend to not do well because uh, they don't... They're too in love with what they've come up with as opposed to in love with solving a problem that real people have and being willing to accept that a hammer may be just one of the tools in the belt or not the right tool at all for some people. And so I think that that core why you started something is probably the most important question. And the why needs to be personal. It needs to be meaningful. It needs to also be impactful. And it can't just be a Band-Aid. What I've often seen people in healthcare run in and they're like, look, I can solve this. And you're like, but this is just a symptom of the problem. The reason why you have a long wait in the emergency room is not because the emergency room can't put more people through, is that the community care doesn't work or the hospital doesn't have beds and admissions or long-term care can't accept patients. And so try and think about the problem overall and identify an important place in which to insert your solution because otherwise you're just a feature or you're adding to the chaos of care as opposed to the fundamentals. And then I think the physician entrepreneur is a very different entity within health innovators because a lot of people see healthcare as a huge industry. And I hate the term Mm -hmm. industry. I don't think we are an industry. Um, I think we we need to 
account for the fact that some things we need to do right, even if it makes no financial sense, because they're the right thing to do for the patient and the provider. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be accounted for. But people come in and they say, like, this is a place where I can print money. I can, you know, make a good living. I can um, sell this company for a lot of money. And then the physician entrepreneur starts from a completely different perspective because we're lucky enough and privileged to come from a place where we have money, we have work, our skills are in demand. The reason why we started something mm -hmm. is from that sense of profound opportunity to make a, a real change or deal with an injustice that we see every day. And we're motivated by solving that and, yes, creating a financial return for the people who gave us funding, uh, creating a financial return so we can reinvest in the idea and keep making it better instead of doing it once well and having it age out. A lot of the EMRs mm -hmm. started out as fantastic tools, but then, you know, they haven't changed in 20 years. And so why? Because no one reinvested in making them better and better and better. And that's uh, one of right. the fundamentals is, you know, what motivated you to change things? Got it. So so that's a lovely segue into what, what I really enjoyed hearing is, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of founders are, are young. They haven't had time to sort of think about this, but you have a, I think a, I'm going to call it sort of a, a heuristic for lack of a better word of this sort of concept of meaningful change and love. And the, and the three components you use, which I found were fascinating, were perspective, time, and inner happiness. Can you talk a little bit of sort of a high level about that sort of concept and, and how has that sort of helped you through the ups and downs of entrepreneurship? Like, like having that meaningful change versus again, I mean, entrepreneurship is hard. Um, everyone has their ups and downs. And if you're just fixing a problem and there's no meaning to it, it's easy to just sort of, you know, find that nice next shiny object. How is that, that sort of concept of meaningful change in love? How's that helped you? As, as an entrepreneur through your ups and downs. Yeah, and I mean, you, you mentioned injustice and a lot of people are motivated by injustice as anger. I tend to find um, right. something in the injustice that gives me love. And so if you're motivated by the negative art of anger, you can go far. But if you can actually sort of um, consider why does this exist, what led to it, and find a positive and build on that is the appreciative inquiry approach to life as opposed to problem-based learning. It's don't look at the mm -hmm. problem, find something that works and grow from there. And so a lot of people today have negative experiences in healthcare, but some of it has to do with 50% or more of doctors and nurses are burnt out. And after the yeah. COVID pandemic, it's worse. And so how can somebody who's not feeling well go the extra mile and provide a smile in the middle of an interaction or focus on your needs is they're hurting. And so trying to punish people in that context makes no sense, but figuring out that maybe the positive flywheel starts by what can I do to make that doctor or nurse's life better so that they can provide better care for their patient drives mm. the entire um, project from a much more positive perspective. And so I tend to see the current problems we have in healthcare as a positive as well. We have successfully saved people that used to go to hospitals to die. And because of mm -hmm. that, they now live longer with more complex diseases and we have more options to offer them. And that has created complexity, that has created fragmentation, that has created a need for many more solutions. But uh, these are good problems to have. They're, they're outputs of our success. Right. And I find that a lot of people criticize the pre-existing, the status quo, not, not realizing what it took to get to it, and that uh, mm -hmm. you know, innovators fought to achieve these things. And so if we were to approach this from that perspective and say, it's really important to acknowledge the positives and that we are, Newton said, building on the shoulders of giants. We are building on the insights and successes and lessons learned um, when we build care team, we're trying to create this sort of a massive horizontal solution in the midst of the fragmentation. Mm -hmm. I talked to a number of people who have tried that and didn't succeed, who generously shared their stories. And similar to how when you invent a new treatment for cancer, you go talk to and read all the papers from everybody who tried to do things and didn't succeed. And that informs where you start. I think that uh, figuring out okay, I want to solve this problem. Is that the real problem? Was it a symptom of the problem? Am I providing a Band-Aid solution or real solution? How can I reframe it from a position of positivity? 
what do I have as assets? And so I find angry physicians are fantastic. They're angry because uh, they didn't <laughs> walk away. They're still trying to communicate something that they're not communicating it perhaps in the right way, but they're not happy with how things are. And so you can work with them and hear them out and start creating that positive flywheel and, and work with everybody on the the core impactful things. What about the patient at the end of the day? And and mm-hmm. go and find them with things that everyone can agree to and build from there and remind them the time is of the essence. While we speak, X number of patients are not getting diagnosed. One of our projects, 36 weeks to diagnose skin cancer is the average wait time in BC. It should be a week. Uh, we all agree yeah. that the anxiety of do I or not have cancer should not last that long, but also 36 weeks sure. means cancer goes deadly. And so why? We're spending the same amount of money, but in uh, sort of delays because it's all fragmented. What if we mm-hmm. can actually coordinate that? And so that was the rallying cry that created this big supercluster initiative, but it started with that question. What if? We all agree that that's the desirable outcome. What if we can all um, concentrate our efforts and attention to that? There's many other things to solve, but let's start with the one that is solvable most immediately. And so by asking some of the bigger questions, you attract different allies, you uh, create different, uh, the Google calls it the moonshots versus roof shots. And so Mm -hmm. if you're aiming for the moon, you're more likely to end on the roof. If you're just aiming for the roof, you may not make it. And so it's like, what if we (laughs) ask some ambitious, impossible question and make progress towards that instead of settling for something that feels doable, will take just as much effort and we may or may not achieve. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think you, you know, the part that, that I think resonated really I mean, all of it did, but particularly is I think in healthcare, things often don't happen fast enough that it's often like that sort of analogy of that frog in the pot that just sort of gets turned up really slowly. And we don't really notice that the water is actually much warmer than it was, you know, 10 or 15 minutes ago. So in healthcare, we don't necessarily acknowledge that we've actually come a long way. We just simply look at the immediate problems in front of us and, and often get sort of frustrated and upset, not realizing that actually we've solved a lot of stuff to get to where we are. So, so I think that that's that's very well put. Uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to ask you to maybe describe for us what I'm going to call Green Hills prescriptions because it seems like I keep coming across. <laughs> you have sort of a list of te- which I think are fantastic because I think you can if you can boil these things down um, into sort of bite sized pieces, it often helps us remember things as opposed to just sort of having long diatribes. I heard you say this, um, which is sort of a list of I think seven things, sort of heuristics for founders about how they can get to the next level. I just want you to maybe touch on each one of these briefly um, for maybe sort of a minute and sort of explain maybe two things. One, if there was anything dramatic or or specific that reminds you of where that actually came from, that notion. And then two, maybe describe for yourself or an example of how that actually proved beneficial. So I think the one, the first one was what got you here won't get you there. Explain that to us. <laughs> so that one comes from Marshall Goldsmith. He's... Um the top-ranked coach for Fortune 500 CEOs in the world. And he basically said is in most organizations, we take the best at, uh, you know, physician, nurse, engineer, lawyer, and we promote them. And suddenly um, what made them into an exceptional practitioner is the exact opposite of what will make them successful at the next level, but we don't prepare them at all. Um, I see you nodding. And so it's like, yes. I, I, you know what? I, I Yes, I have so many examples and you've just sort of crystallized all of it in that one simple phrase. Um, but I can, yes, I can see that in spades. That's a whole different conversation. But I love that because now I can really actually understand what you meant by that. And I can certainly mm-hmm. see that. Um, so number two is, had, yeah, oh, go ahead. Uh, before I had, she had a yeah. chance to meet him and he explained oh. that uh, he often sees physicians as the prime example of this. And he basically yeah. said is smart, high energy people never question what is no longer necessary. What am I doing that is actually not productive? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he changed my life. I met him about 20 years ago now. And he basically said is at any point, like on a regular piece of basis, you need to question and say, what am I doing right now that no longer serves me? And what do I need to start doing that will serve me? And so as care team, for example, is growing, I've started talking to CEOs who've led what I call zero to hero, people who've accomplished huge growth fast, 
because mm-hmm. I need to improve what I know because I, I'm going to enter that fast pace of growth. And so um, I don't know what I don't know about that next phase. What do I need to learn? But I'm willing to learn right. and they are willing to teach me and that's what it takes. So uh, it's a book, uh, must read, super fast okay. read. Um, what got you here won't get you get put- here there from um, Marshall Goldsmith. Perfect. I'll put a link to the book on the show notes. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, define success. So that is another book. Um, uh, The COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK wrote a book and he called it a painted picture, vivid vision. And his example is brilliant. He basically said is um, a whole bunch of people who've seen The Sound of Music remember um, the meadow where she took them for picnic and they sang the famous song with, you know, the guitar. And um, so if you have that vision in your head and you bring in your young and motivated employee and you just tell them, please take these seven children, have a memorable activity and get them to eat something and report back, they can take them to Stanley Park, play on the beach and eat hot dogs and come back. And then if you are angry because they didn't do your vision of the sound of music, meadow, picnic, Mm -hmm. Whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the young employee who had no idea what your vision was in the head? Or was it your fault for not defining all of the parameters that mattered and making them super clear to everyone else who was involved? And so ensuring that you like your destination is very key. Ensuring that all of the key components are there. And so for me, success is being there with everyone who's accomplished this. And so we actually sort of did this what would the page of uh, the New York Times or Fast Company look like when Care Team succeeds? And it's not one leader sort of proud, but it, it's a group of people and saying, we did it. Because it's impossible gotcha. to pull off what we're trying to pull off unless the team does it. And to me, that's important. Makes sense. Number three, align your focus. And so, um, good to great. Another book, Jim yep. Collins um, talks a lot about <laughs> getting a pattern. The hedgehog, <laughs> um, and to, I've used the hedgehog now for twenty years, and that's sort of a combination between uh, what are you most passionate about. It goes back to the earlier conversation yep. about if you come from a place of love and passion and determination, it's it it trumps everything else. Uh, combined with what can you be the best at and only that and sort of refuse to do anything else that is not core. And then the third piece is think very carefully about the financial underpinnings. I've seen so many fantastic ideas in healthcare because we are so mission driven, because we come from the non-business world, we forget the reality that you need gas for your engine. You need fuel, mm-hmm. you need to be yeah. able to hire yeah. people and grow this. And so figure out a business model that works. And so the three of those combined um, create a really powerful execution path that gets your idea to launch and then scale. Gotcha. I'd never heard this term before. So number four is go Picasso. (laughs) That one does not come from a book. This is mine. Oh, okay. I thought it was a fourth book. (laughs) Yes. No, no, no. But um, I watched a documentary about Picasso and I did not know that he was a classically trained painter. And so if you look at Picasso in the earlier phases, he did Mona Lisa-like paintings. And so... In the documentary, they had a quote from him saying that only because for about a decade, I learned the best that the masters had uh, been able to teach me and practiced it, was I able to then break through and create my own entirely new style. And so in the projects that I tackle, I recommend, like we collectively as a team always think about Go Picasso, which is learn everything there is to be learned as a best practice, and then think about how can you take it to the next level. And that's Go Picasso. Gotcha. The carpool analogy, number five. So this one should be a book, and I'm talking to um, Bill Thal, who is the author of that, to make it into a book because... He was, uh, he's one of my mentors. He was the CEO of Heart and Stroke Canada, then the Canadian Medical Association, Canadian Hospital Association, is now leading the Canadian Health Leadership uh, Network Initiative. And so 
all of these different organizations had breakthrough moments when he was involved. And he's always used that carpool analogy to make it happen. And I've used it since then to recruit my co-founders, investors. No one that works with me has not heard me say that almost within the first or second conversation. And it's a very simple way of saying, are we meant to collaborate? And so mm, when you okay. carpool together, uh, there's four cardinal rules. One of them is you have to be going to the same place. If you're not going to the same place, that's the end of the discussion right there. But that's uh, necessary, not sufficient. You need to have the same values. You need to um, not smoke, uh, agree that we're going to obey the rules, uh, agree that we want to get there within a certain time frame or sort of through a certain method. Um, and so getting that values agreement is really key. And then the last, the third piece is the specifics. Who does what on that trip? Um, and, uh, you know, I provide the car, you pay for the gas. The third person right. knows the way. The fourth one will keep us awake. Like, whatever it is, it, it doesn't have to be equal contribution, but it has to be clarity over who does what. And then the final right. piece, which oftentimes people off also skip, is um, how do we uh, celebrate? Like, do we publicly acknowledge that, hey... Joe did 90% of the work and supplied 90% of the, you know, cost, or do we just say we all made it to our final destination and we separately split the bills okay. quietly? Like, and so some sort of an agreement of at the end of the road, what happens? Uh, and right. so that quick two, three minute description um, moves the agreement and the discussion and the willingness to work together miles ahead. Because people are right. like, I get it. It's a simple analogy. And uh, we oftentimes either agree that we have the same destination and values, and then the rest of it is easy to sort out because there's trust embedded in the conversation. Or we just say, you know what? Um, we overlap directions, but it's not mm -hmm. a great fit, or we can't agree on a core value, and therefore the rest of it is immaterial. Right. So it reminds me very much of this sort of, are you on the bus, off the bus, except it has so much more specificity, right? Yes. Because when we talk about that analogy, we really just stop at the first one, which is, are we going on the same direction? Yes. If you're going my way, then great, Jump hop in. on the bus. If you're not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, otherwise we're not. But we forget about all those other um, important facets that you mentioned. So I really yes. like that. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, number six is paint a picture. Well, paint a picture kind of goes back to the um, the first one, but in Some. more detail. And so it's important when you start to have an idea of where you're going. Keith Tiare, who was the founder of uh, TechCrunch, uh, actually gave me this idea when I was in an um, accelerator in, in San Francisco called Black Box. He came in and, and he, he's an older gentleman. And he said, having a startup or starting an initiative is like being pregnant. And so I was like, well, what do you mean? by that and he's like well you conceive of an idea but it's hidden to you and others you actually have no idea what it's going to look like you just have an inkling of an idea but um once the idea comes out uh success is getting others involved uh teachers you know others sort of who can shape your idea and as it grows your idea will change and uh, even you are not going to recognize that idea when it hits sort of uh, adulthood. And so, um, you know, as a parent of three kids, uh, I resonate, right? It's like my babies don't look anything like the teenagers yeah. and they're not going to look like anything like the adults. But um, the faster you can put in writing some things that are core that you want them to have, the more effective uh, everyone else can contribute to help you achieve the vision that you had in initially so that it doesn't get lost in the mix. And so um, I do have a method for everything. And so on the kids front, my three rules are happy, healthy, and contributing. And so everything else is fluff okay. around that. But I, if, if I can have the kids follow those three parameters and everyone else evolved around them, understand that those are my priorities then that's key. And so paint a picture is start writing down what's in your head, start communicating it and simplify it, bring it down to the core elements that are absolutely key and be willing to live with the fact that, you know, your junior employee may not take the seven kids to the meadow and have music, but a memorable, safe experience uh, for them is just good enough. It doesn't matter right. which one it is. Makes sense. Fantastic. 
I'm still working on the contributing because I have teenagers, but well, that's another conversation. <laughs> so I got the other two right. The, the last one, number seven, is is grow for adversity. Let me just sort of explain that to us briefly. Yeah, um, another life changing book in my life was uh, the Growth Mindset. Uh, Carol yeah. Dweck, um, San Francisco psychologist. Uh, it's that whole sort of a flip of when you encounter a difficulty to just perceive it as an opportunity to learn something new. And so um, anytime you start anything new, by definition, there'll be challenges. And um, how you mentally tackle another challenge uh, defines uh, how difficult your journey is. Do you leap from rock to rock or just sort of fear the entire experience? Um, if you think about the startup journey as this series of things that you're pretty sure will happen, you will lose a critical employee, you will get a no on a whole bunch of attempts to get going, uh, a critical account will abandon you or something will happen and you'll lose revenue. Uh, someone will inevitably launch something legal against you. Like there's, there's so many things that will right. go wrong and they almost always do. And so I read the hard things about hard things. Um, yeah, great and, book. And that was another great book because they sort of illustrated in action how many things can and will go wrong. Um, but it's an opportunity to discover more about yourself. And the way you survive through all of these is through the network of people supporting you. And so when I first started, <laughs> you have the book right there. I love it. Right there. Um, you know, he talks about how um, his wife was in a coma as he was selling his business. And when I first started in the startup world, I got a phone call from my brother that he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it was, you know... Uh, talk about an asteroid, young person, no risk factors. But because I had great founder, co-founders, a uh, great board who was supportive and a great team, um, you could run and do this. And the reverse is also true. Um, the only way I can have a life and three kids is because on the home front, family and friends and others are uh, super helpful and supportive mm -hmm. to me and what I need. And so... Um, the growth through adversity works, but don't think about it as just you growing, but it's uh, leaning on others and also sharing trouble. And um, I have a personal um, frustration with all of the leaders who sit on the panel and say it was all easy and make everybody else in the audience feel like, well, then I'm out. Because if, if it is easy, I'm not experiencing easy and it's so difficult and I get right. discouraged. And I think if we all collectively started admitting how hard it is and saying, it's okay, it's going to be hard, but it's worthwhile. And you don't do it alone. This is a whole network of mentors and advisors and supporters and friends who are there to help you. We will see a lot more progress and we'll see a lot more mental health within people who are trying to do leadership because it is lonely otherwise. Mm-hmm. That was great. So, so just in case the founders on listening didn't get it, they should just Green Hills prescription title and seven items writ large on your door for your team. Just write it everywhere because I think those are fantastic heuristics. They they take a lot of work. They sound very sort of simple and trite, but I think um, when you start to unpack them, what I love about them is they have so much meaning. And if you can start to you know work on them and get them right, I really think it's going to help sort of you yeah, know founders you find their them, direction. It's beautiful. Once you get them, they're fast to implement. Like the carpool yeah. analogy is two minutes, but it saved me so much difficulty. Right. Um, you know, it creates fast trust and alignment in a way that nothing else does. Um, yeah. And so uh, learning them takes time. Using them saves you an incredible amount of time. Right. Which is time is invaluable to entrepreneurship. So as, as I'm sure founders know. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Talk, I think, a, a topic that's pretty close to you and certainly is in the news, which is diversity. So, so healthcare and specifically sort of women in, in healthcare is what I want to talk about first. So I went in and I think, you know, this sort of when I looked at Kai high data, women in healthcare, you know, it, it they're prominent 47% in family medicine, 40% in medicine, fortunately, 31% in surgical specialties. Before this podcast, I tried to look, I looked at several articles trying to get any sense of how prominent are women founders, not women in health tech, but women founders in health and technology. And I couldn't find anything. What's your sense, having been in the ecosystem as a mentor, as a founder yourself, do you have any sense where we are? And, and obviously what I'm trying to understand, I guess, is are we closer to family medicine or are we closer to surgery? Do you have any sense of that? That's a great framing of the question. Um, 
the um, we are closer to surgery, unfortunately. Okay. And okay. I love the fact that you quoted Kai Hai. I've been on the board of Kai Hai now almost for a year. Great organization. I love data that illuminates, you know, impressions or intentions. When I was at the Canadian Medical Association, the Office for uh, Leadership did some work on the Office for Women in Medicine and sort of. Um, the trend is that there's more women overall, but the leadership positions, uh, there's still a huge gap. And there's a number of reasons for that, including early career, you end up busy with children, therefore you're not as sort of prone to get leadership positions and you don't climb. And so I think the first dean of a medical school in Canada ever happened after the year 2000. And I think there's been like two in the history of Canada. And um, wow. so... I kind of knew all of those stats from medical leadership and the work that I'd done there. And when I walked into startup land, I was uh, amazed that it's actually worse. And so the number of women is lower uh, in healthcare or outside of healthcare, especially in the sort of founder uh, C role. Yeah. It's growing, but uh, you sort of find reports from 10 years ago where people were very optimistic and it's a bit of a boom and bust cycle. Um, so there's a huge effort and then nothing happens or there's a slide back. And uh, so hopefully the effort that's happening right now is a move up, but um, it's certainly not easy. And the biggest issue is pattern recognition. And so um, as a physician, you already have an issue with pattern recognition. Investors sort of want you to do full-time um, mm -hmm. startup work. Yeah. They don't understand that physicians, we've always done multiple things at the same time. So a lot of us still have clinical practice. We do academic work, we research, and we do a startup and we're fine doing it. But uh, they're used to full-time founders that only do their startup. And uh, so uh, that's one pattern. Uh, as a woman physician, we have the other pattern, which is they don't know that many founders who are successful or mothers who okay. are successful. And so you kind of go against the heuristic of, oh, I've seen X, therefore I believe it. Um, and you become this unproven entity that I hadn't seen before. And so one of the fun conversations that led to an investment in the Valley was you know, late on Friday afternoon, investor, I walk in, investors like, oh, you plus you're a Canadian, so like you are extra nice <laughs> and don't have business instincts. And so he basically said, like, I don't even know why I agreed to meet with you, and sort of like, I don't know if, uh, you know, Canadians don't have the killer instinct kind of thing. But I think there was a whole other things implied in the question, and I said, well. As an emergency doc, if something happened to you, I can intubate you in under 30 seconds. How's that for decisiveness? <laughs> and he's like perked up in his chair and he's like, okay, let's talk. Right. And so there's a bit of a chance to start flipping the stereotypes. And I see it really important for me to show success. And there's a, a handful of other women across Canada who are physicians and founders of startups. And all of us um, can pave the way and show that um, most of us are mothers, most of us are involved in clinical work still, and uh, we can show that it's possible to balance all of it. And in fact, not just balance, but succeed. And that would open the door for more gotcha. people to follow in the path. So, so is, is that the way, in, uh, one of the ways, I guess, in your mind that we accelerate the path for more women to enter the space is having individuals like yourself and having success. And until that happens in a big way, you're unlikely to get the flood. Or is it more sort of, you know, there's this whole push about sort of women into STEM, or is it a systemic issue? You know, you mentioned sort of the challenges with going out and getting funding from investors who have this certain pattern, which includes full-time, which may not include females as on the technology front anyway. Um, is it, you know, and obviously you can pick on each one of those areas, but what do you think will be the biggest breakthrough for women? Yeah, you're asking really for the domino effect right there. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, uh, I use the term wicked problem in, in yeah. its, yeah. you know, academic definition. So yes, mm -hmm. it's multifactorial. It takes a little bit of everything. I do think that there's a, a series of dominoes that are more effective that, you know, the domain of uh, confidence and so I see a lot of young women who have had STEM training, uh, they've gone through and experienced all of this, and they still don't act because they need reassurance, either that they can still have a family and raise children. Okay. Uh, like I have a lot of people reach out to me and they say, like, how do you do it? Um, and I'm happy to share. Um, and so that seems to be a, a dimension that matters. 
the practical, like how do I, uh, is a definite. And so we're part of a project called uh, Athena Pathways for Women in AI, trying to okay. make sure that in AI we don't see the same thing happen as in coding, which is forget the women and interacting with the women and sort of both when we mentor them, but also uh, when we um, do surveys is uh, it, it takes uh, training, mentorship, examples, um, networking at peer groups, so you don't feel isolated and all of those factors are necessary. But I personally feel that the one that is probably the most important and easiest to do would be just examples, role models that you kind right. of say, you know, if they could do it, maybe I can as well. And then everything else becomes an enabler on that vision because you can do right. the opposite, have all of the things in place. But if there's no visible uh, role right. model, it, it's much harder to figure it out. It's almost like cooking from a series of statements as opposed to just watching the video of somebody pulling it off. Right. That makes sense. Do, do you, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but are we similar in Canada and U.S.? Is there one geography that you think maybe is slightly ahead We're of the very, other or they're very pretty similar. on par? We're very, very, very similar. similar. Yeah. And the fact okay. that's probably the biggest um, <laughs> blind side of U.S. Uh, investors or, you know, digital health innovators is this, we've somehow fooled the world that Canada has figured it out and our healthcare system is amazing. But uh, there's many more similarities and differences in the everyday life of patients yeah. and clinicians. Um, across the border. And it's exact same challenges for the innovators when you go to uh, a physician or a health innovator um, founders group in Canada or in the US, the conversation is identical. Got it. Hmm. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll pick that up a little bit. Um, one of the things that's really sort of fascinated me, sort of just about diversity, but obviously females in, in healthcare technologies, what I'm going to call sort of this unbundling and the sort of femtech which is getting a lot of excitement. Um, and I think it's fantastic. And we're not going to sort of say whether it works out or whether it doesn't, but I think it's it's wonderful to get people um, who are, you know, we talked about that, have meaning to what they're doing. And to me, that you can't get much closer than that, sort of being a female health technology founder and focusing on what's meaningful for you. What other exciting things are you seeing in digital healthcare technology, mainly because of diversity? Is there anything else that sort of you're seeing that you're like, wow, that actually doesn't happen in the traditional health system, but because other people are allowed to enter through various other pathways um, in the sort of, going to call sort of health innovation, they're able to craft new spaces that maybe sort of traditional clinicians didn't see. Is there anything else going on that's interesting, even if it's not big? What are you seeing? Yeah, and I think that um, in the old model of things, it was just prohibitively expensive to deal with the exceptions. And so you kind of had to say, I have X amount of dollars, technology is very expensive, building programs is complicated. So I need to focus on the hips and knees and, you know, forget the shoulders or ankles. And, right. you know, yeah. um, I can only do these six cancers that are affecting everybody. Um, and so um, there were winner diseases and loser diseases. Yeah. And so complex care fees would only cover certain conditions like diabetes and heart disease. But what about my patients with HIV or autoimmune disease? And, and like, why are they not served? And so part of the beauty of technology is that um, the cost of launching a program has come down and you can create a service that is almost like a dedicated to a subgroup of people who are until now underserviced. So one of the organizations we're working with is in eating disorders. You can either build your own app or use care team to sort of the technology is immaterial, the same way as in Shopify. You can just mm -hmm. launch an e-commerce store online without having to code everything. You can just use it uh, to deliver a new offering. And so eating disorders affects a significant percentage of the population. But if you actually sort of search the words eating disorder in most provincial governments or health authority documents, it's just not there. And that community has needed a place, a space, a specialized treatment. And because of technology, you can actually provide it and ensure that the quality of care in a tiny little rural area in Ontario is on par with what you would get in a major city in an academic center. And that's uh, the great opportunity of tech. It's the great problem that we want to also solve is that as you create all of these different micro communities or, you know, 
streams of services, it's still the same patient. And so how do you combine something that targets menopause, diabetes, you know, IBD, mental health and anxiety, and uh, it's still the same patient? Are they going to participate in five different communities? And how do they make that work in 24 hours? And so that becomes the current success, creating a new problem that needs to be solved. And we are working on anticipating that problem. But I see it overall as a great opportunity to provide better services for the kinds of patients that until now couldn't find it, couldn't couldn't have a service to deliver to them. Right. That makes sense. We're we're focused on going so vertically deep now within individual domains. At some point, someone's going to look horizontally again and say, how do we connect them up? And I guess that's where you sit. So this makes perfect sense. I'm going to jump to a topic that I know you and I have sort of briefly touched on, which is the whole idea about evidence and and digital healthcare. And and I actually dug into it a bit um, over the last little while. I was really kind of fascinated to, there have been a couple of papers recently published on it over the last year or two. One of the stats I came up with was, um, I think this paper was published in 2020, so it's not that long ago, of the top 20 healthcare venture funded companies, which have received about $2.5 billion in total. 104 studies in aggregate peer-reviewed were published. What I found, so that may be good, that may be bad, but what I found really interesting is only 16 of those 104 actually looked at clinical outcomes. So, you know, I, I'm really, and, and I know I've talked to other founders, this conversation can go either way, but I'm curious from your perspective, both being a clinician and being a founder, what your perspective is on the role of evidence at all, frankly, in, in, in healthcare ventures and founding. And where do you think, if if anywhere, does it make the most impact for the founder? Is it something that sort of the more evidence they have, it helps early adopters, they need it later on. It's not that important. People are sort of really enamored by all the technology, but they need it when the early majority comes on board. Or is it something that, you know what, eventually it will happen, assuming you get enough traction and adoption, and then you just publish whenever, but it's not necessarily for adoption. Where do you, so what's your perspective on the whole idea of founders having to publish peer-reviewed papers, not not necessarily white papers or odd stats or data they've collected from their own database, but mm-hmm. peer-reviewed, transparent papers that someone can go and say, I understand what this is doing for my patient in front of me or for my clinic or for my hospital or whatever. I mean, and so somebody who sort of early in my career, evidence-based medicine was coming in, and then we had evidence-informed medicine, and then my favorite personally, which is patient-oriented evidence that matters. Poems, it's an acronym, and yep. so um, something that is statistically significant doesn't mean it's impactful in real life, and that's where and we don't we can't have evidence for everything. So within that framework, I would say that that's probably the biggest problem I see when I advise other startups. Typically, there's a big divide between academically minded founders and sort of um, the academics stay and publish. And then there's a series of people who try and do apps and software and devices and other tools. Sometimes they overlap, but oftentimes they don't. And um, the number one question I always start with is say, what did the literature review say? And I've literally had founders say, what is a literature review? And I was like, maybe they're not familiar with that term and I need to describe it in a different way. But almost inevitably is they hadn't done one. And so when I was mentioning earlier the importance of learning from all of the other efforts that have either succeeded or Mm. failed so that you're not reinventing the wheel is absolutely critical. And so uh, in our day and age, it's so easy to get the published literature and like read through a number of studies and look at what's happened and how can you incorporate that, that the, the, the number one stepping thing is don't start without one. And so there's no statistics on this. I wish there was somebody who published a study, but I would say that the study you quoted would have a mirror one, which is how many of them had done any research before they started. Um, And then sort of usability, like they would typically say, well, you know, we've asked five doctors what they wanted and then we built an app and you're like, well, five is not enough. And so you end up with an app that it was funded that, you know, a lot of people passionate, wanted to solve a problem, but it doesn't work because you didn't do enough user research and interviews and uh, combined it with published research. And then the final piece is just accessing funds. Um, The founders oftentimes don't know how to apply for an independent grant 
to create okay. a peer-reviewed study. And even if they knew how to apply it, there's not sufficient uh, amount of funding available to study some of these newer methods. Mm -hmm. the, the funding mechanisms are more traditional. Um, apps change. You know, we push code every day. So, like, how do you design a cohort? And uh, how do you adapt some of those research methodologies to this rapidly changing environment um, with AI, which may be in the black box. And so um, a lot of ethical issues, people don't understand that you actually need to sign up patients for research. And so I've seen people lead peer-reviewed studies, but they didn't get proper patient consent or an ethics board approval. Oops. Or, you know, um, uh, I am appointed at UBC, but I can't do a research on my own project and right. it's not it's yeah. not independent enough. And so none of those things come through and um, are well understood. And um, we end up doing a lot of things that are uh, hard and whatnot and we think work, but we don't have any evidence. And um, that outcome uh, ultimately cannot just be satisfaction. Uh, we need to produce uh, patient-oriented evidence that matters, that this actually had a real impact on the disease or uh, on the costs or preventing admissions or other things. And there's not enough of that. Is, is your sense, though, that that peer-reviewed publication helps the founder and the company in any way, shape, or form? Or is that unclear, I guess? Because is, is, some of the pushback when you read it is... Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not an academic. That's not what I'm building a company for, and so I don't want to spend all my time and effort and focus producing peer-reviewed publications. I guess the other pushback, which I would say to that, is well, you don't need to make a career out of it or publish ten, but if you can publish sort of one pivotal study that shows you have clinical impact, that may be all you need. So I'm just sort of wondering where you fall on that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the interesting thing on that is this sort of a misunderstanding of the value of that. And so um, the perception is that you're just giving something away and yeah. um, uh, it has no inherent value. But every software company tends to have open source projects. They tend to give back to the community what they've learned and package. Yeah. You know, Netflix has pu published their methods. And, um, and so if we sort of reframe that thinking and say that, Part of you publishing will help you make a better job for your own product, will make share what you know with others and increase the value overall of the entire ecosystem. Um, but that needs to have um, champions. We need to have people who speak out on this and who also um, coordinate with the funding bodies to authorize research, to get researchers interested. And that's an entire area in which uh, there isn't enough conversation happening. Um, yeah. And the thing that I see is actually um, deplorable is a number of people are publishing studies that are frankly not studies. Like they, they'll say 28 users, you know, asked a couple of questions over two weeks using the app right. and they said yep. thumbs up and it makes it into some sort of a journal, but frankly, right. it's not research. And yeah. so there's a lot of that survey um, stuff. Too many of those. Right. Um, don't serve the purpose and in fact create pollution <laughs> It's sort of uh, uh, the impression of yeah. progress without the reality of it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Um, so I'm looking at the time. I have sort of two questions left. Um, what I'm, and, and again, I've, I've heard little bits and pieces of, of this and sort of some of your other talks and stuff. I, I can't imagine a founder who has sort of more experience in healthcare and more accolades than yourself. At the same time, I've heard you sort of hint that, and, and this is not so much about the founder piece, but that you get more inbound calls from maybe customers outside the Canadian health system than within. Is that, I'm curious, do you think that's a systemic issue with Canadian healthcare or is that an issue with our healthcare innovation system? Can you just sort of comment on, like, is that a customer-driven issue that just the the reimbursements aren't there, the, the sort of interest isn't there to push digital health as far or as fast maybe as, as other jurisdictions? Or is that just as Canadian sort of innovation ecosystem writ large, we just don't put enough emphasis behind our own companies to get traction here? Yeah, I, I think that that's a fantastic question. I don't think it's a healthcare alone problem. I hear this same comments from all the other founders 
um, that um, the one thing that San Francisco has traditionally is the model of the four C's. They have concepts, they have coders, they have cash, but the fourth C is the key, which is customers. They have a society of people living within that geography who are willing to try out, be the early adopters, the criticizers, the champions. And the one thing that if was on my wish list would be more early adopters within Canada. We tend to be a little bit more conservative, you know, peace, order, good governance. You know, I'll try that after my neighbor does. And uh, as a result, uh, we end up missing out on things because um, other geographies just have a mindset of if it's new and can help me make my life better, my customer's life better, my patient's life better, uh, tell me. I want to know because I, I just want to improve faster. And so um, we, if we had more of that own the podium mentality of, you know, like all the Canadians rallying behind our Olympians, um, yeah. all of us being proud, not just of the academic accolades of what we've accomplished, but also wanting to build a reputation of the first people to use this. And you see it in Israel, you see it in San Francisco, you see it in various pods um, around Europe and Singapore. Uh, that fourth component of customers or users is pretty key. Um, and then our timelines here tend to be longer. Uh, you know, the timeline between uh, I'll call up somebody for a meeting or somebody reaches out for a meeting. In Canada, the average seems to be three to four weeks. In uh, the U.S., is three to four days, and if not hours. And so that rapidity and, of let's get something right. done. And sorry, is it? For you mean like for an investor call for a customer or for all everything. of it? Everything. It's just all of it. everything. Yes. Got it. They're just we more rapid. To, we to tend to have this sort of a sense that it's okay to wait longer. Um, and so okay. part of our wait time problem is, you know, if collectively patients were to stand up and say, it's not good enough to wait nine months to see a gastroenterologist when I'm bleeding every day. Um, right. I think we'd have a lot of a better healthcare system, but, um, for whatever reason, we are accepting of that. And the occasional patient who gets upset, we label and we say, oh, the, this person is being so rude. And you're like, yeah, but right. they, they shouldn't be rude. They're anxious. This is their health and they have right. a right. And yeah. you know, we can and should do better for them. Right. Fantastic. So so the, the final question I'd like to ask all my guests is, you know, we talked about sort of changing the healthcare system. We touched on a number of, so say, challenges we have with the healthcare system. But at the end of the day, you know, our healthcare system does a lot of things pretty darn good. I'm just curious, as you kind of look to the future and as all sort of the founders and investors and everybody kind of looking to kind of make the healthcare system better, what is it that you hope gets dragged from today's system into the future that we don't actually lose, that is really valuable and that shouldn't change, that you don't want to change? What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I haven't been asked before, so <laughs> oh, that is a good one. Um, <laughs> I've done yeah. my job for today. Yes, you have. You have. Um, one of the things that I do when I travel around the world is I actually like to visit hospitals or clinics or just like see it for myself because like, it's different than when you read about it or you watch people present. And um, yeah. the one thing for sure is uh, that universal access is a very key component. Um, so the impact that people who worry about how much will it cost me to yeah. uh, delays care creates the kinds of heartbreaking moments for clinicians and others around them as oh. well. So it's not just the person, but everything around them that uh, it gets right. impacted. And so the fact that most of my career as a clinician, I've been able to just do the right thing for the patient in the most critical moments has been incredible. incredible. I just wish it could extend to things like physiotherapy and counseling and dental care because right. uh, that's where we fall short. But uh, if you were to take the principle of universal and apply it to that and medication costs, that would be the ideal system of the future where we could really focus on not, I was talking earlier about not the industry of healthcare, but the, right. the healthcare system where you are cared for. And um that's one of the things that we have in Canada that we are lucky to have and we fought hard to achieve that I would hope mm -hmm. to see preserved. 
Phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Uh, so, so the last things, I guess, if, if people want to stay in touch with you, Alexander, if they want to find out more what you're doing, what care team's doing, I know you're part of sort of CDL, a bunch of other mentorships, people want to sort of, you know, follow you and see what you're up to. How, what's the best way to keep in touch with you? I'm a big user of LinkedIn and respond to that. Okay. And so people can find me there. Um, the reaching out is key. Uh, so many people have helped me figure this out. Ten years ago, I knew nothing about startups and entrepreneurship. And uh, for people willing to learn, there's many people willing to help. And there are different organizations for different stages. When you first start, do this. And then, you know, CDL is probably Creative Destruction Lab. I would describe as almost the... Uh, is executive MBA level, like when you're ready <laughs> right. for something big, go there. Um, it's key for physicians to become more involved because the same way as we're working on um, Athena Pathways for Women in AI, um, I think we missed the first wave of digitization in healthcare and we're suffering the effects of that. Uh, the tools designed for us by well-intentioned coders mm -hmm. and investors oh didn't understand the complexity of our clinical reality, and only by becoming more involved at every step, advisors, um, founders, uh, um, investors, evaluators, can we uh, help ensure that the next wave of tools actually makes sense? So reach out, Lovely. happy to help and share. That's fantastic. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, Alexandra. And, you know, maybe in six months, 12 months, we can kind of circle back, see how you're doing, see how the Canadian health innovation system is doing. Probably most important, see how care team's been doing. Well, all I can say is change happens slower than you think and also faster than you think. And so <laughs> I'm excited about what's going to happen so, in six so, months. So Bill Gates said, that's right. I'm sure there will be a lot of changes. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Amol. This was fantastic. This was like fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.